Let us now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 15. You can find that on page 488 of your book of praise. What do you confess when you say that he suffered? During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so he freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes, thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. After the sermon, we will respond by singing from hymn 21, stanzas 3, 4, and 7. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, life is full of suffering. There's no escaping it. We all experience suffering around us. It may be at one point that we enjoy perfectly good health and suddenly it is taken away from us. Or a terrible accident may render us helpless and totally dependent on others. Or a disease may invade our bodies confronting us with impending death. Or suffering may occur because of natural disasters, floods, or mudslides or fires may disrupt, disrupt our lives and cause an enormous amount of damage and loss of life. Or we may experience suffering in domestic affairs. There's nothing like trouble at home to take away the joy of life. Such things often cause people to think, what kind of God am I serving? Some will even come to rather extreme conclusions. That's what a certain rabbi did in a popular book entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He wrote, life is not fair. The wrong people get sick and the wrong people get robbed and the wrong people get killed in wars and accidents. Some people see life's unfairness and decide there is no God. The world is nothing but chaos. From this it is clear that this rabbi himself is a bitter man. He has no real comfort in this life. This rabbi does not believe the God of the Bible. He addresses the subject of the living God through the eyes of a grieving father. For it was the death of his own son that prompted that rabbi to write this book. He is a man without faith, and so he has no answers, only questions. And so he asks, are you capable of forgiving and loving God even when you have found out that he is not perfect? 
even when he has let you down and disappointed you by permitting bad luck and sickness and cruelly, cruelty in his world and permitting some of those things to happen to you? Can you learn to love and forgive him despite his limitations? When we read such things, we may cluck our tongues and say, My, what a blasphemous statement. Those thoughts should never enter anyone's mind. But the point is, they do. People do tend to see God that way. And they have a hard time reconciling themselves with the cruelties that you find in this world. And then they want to blame God for them. The preacher Ecclesiastes also comments on such apparent incongruities of life. He comments about the futility of life. He writes in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11 and 12, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come, as fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. And so we too may ask, what is life all about? We all suffer the same fate. What is the purpose of it all? Well, the Catechism, as a true book of comfort based on God's Word, does give us an answer. It doesn't just come with questions. No, for each question it asks, it has an answer, and it is an answer based on the Word of God. It gives us an answer to suffering, for it deals with the only suffering that truly does make sense, the suffering of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us listen to the preaching of God's Word as we confess it in Lord's Day 15 about the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will see three things. The real significance of His suffering. Secondly, the official quality of His suffering. And then finally, the special character of His death. First, and the real significance of His suffering. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23 that he preaches Christ crucified, a stumbling block, to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Christ is a stumbling block to them. He is a stumbling block to the Jews because they do not believe that in Christ the scriptures were fulfilled. One of the most difficult passages for a Jew to deal with is the passage that we just read together, Isaiah 53. Indeed, according to a Reformed minister who was born into a Jewish family, and was later converted to Christianity, this passage is usually skipped by the Jews. For they do not know how to deal with it. They do not know to whom this passage would apply. They do not know to whom it applies because they have rejected the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is no wonder that that rabbi comes to the conclusion that he does. For if we do not want to apply Isaiah 53 to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will never have a satisfactory answer for the suffering in this world. For only in Christ can we find the true answer. 
there is no other way that we can come to a satisfactory conclusion. And what applies to the Jews applies equally to the Gentiles. For he is also a stumbling block to them. He is foolishness to them. And so the world finds its comfort only in the things that they know, in power, in sex, in alcohol, in drugs, in their work, in their families, in their fame, or in their material well-being. But do those things satisfy you? Do they make you happy? No, for those earthly things are always temporary. They give pleasure only for the moment. Earthly pleasures keep you crying out for more, for better. True joy is unattainable. The man of the world will admit that they do not understand the purpose of life or the reason that God has put them in this world. It's also the conclusion the well-known journalist Jack Webster came to in his book which he wrote after retiring from his broadcasting career. The last sentence he writes in his book is that he does not know the reason why man has been placed here on this earth. And this is from a man who has been brought up in the Presbyterian home. This is from a man who has dealt with the news all over the world for centuries, who has seen it all. And he says, I have no idea what man's purpose is here on earth. Poor man, poor people. They have no comfort. They are all left wanting. They're all left only with questions. And why? Because they have rejected Christ and the suffering which he suffered in our stead. What is it then about Christ's suffering which gives only a true believer hope and comfort and joy in this life? Well, brothers and sisters, before we can answer that, we must have a good understanding, first of all, of the content and the cause of Christ's suffering. The first thing that we must know is that nothing can compare with the suffering of Christ. It cannot even begin to compare with the suffering that we have to endure. When the Lord Jesus prays in Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. The content of that cup is so bitter that he says to his disciples that they cannot drink that cup. And that, beloved, is what can be said about all the suffering of Christ. For as the Catechism says, he suffered all the time while he was on earth. The prophet Isaiah describes the man of suffering in some detail. He gives quite a graphic portrayal of that man of suffering. And the picture is not very pretty. He tells us that he had no beauty or majesty, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He pictures that man of suffering as someone from whom we would hide our faces, as a man to be despised. But that's not how the world sees Jesus Christ, is it? How does the world, for example, portray that child at Christmas time? They picture him as that sweet baby in a manger, so tender and mild. He is the epitome of perfection and goodness. 
And when they speak about that same Jesus as an adult, they do so within the context only of the great love that he has for this world, his compassion, and his kindness. And indeed, those things are true enough. But there is another side that man does not want to see. And that is the picture painted here in Isaiah 53. They do not want to see him in his despised state. They do not want to be confronted by that man of sorrows. And why not? Because in order to be able to look at him, you first of all have to want to be confronted by your own sins. You must see yourself in him. You must see and understand that he became ugly and despised because of the sin of man, because of your sin, because of my sin. To the man of today, sin is a dirty word. As far as the world is concerned, talk about sin comes only from the lips of overzealous Christians who want to depress you and who want to impose their set of morals on the rest of the world. Why do you think they're so hostile to Christianity? Because they're humanists at heart. For a humanist places a high value on the integrity of man. And that is why a man such as Rabbi Kushner, who is at heart a humanist as well, is so angry at God. He thinks that he deserves a life without suffering. And he is optimistic about the goodness which is in every man. And therefore he and the others do not want to speak about the horror of sin which is part of the human condition, nor of the tremendous price. Modern man speaks exclusively about the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ, about the fact that he took up the cause of the weak and the sick, about the fact that he had compassion on all men, including the downtrodden of society, such as the tax collectors, the murderers, and the prostitutes. And that is from where, so they say, we can draw our comfort and our instruction. In many Christian churches of today, the social gospel is preached. They see Christ as our moral support. They preach a Christ who shows us how we can drive injustice and poverty from this world. He is the embodiment of everything that is good about man. And that is what those modern churches also portray to the rest of the world. They portray such a Christ. Is it no wonder that in a recent poll, the majority of Canadians still believe that Jesus is the Son of God? But the question is, what kind of Jesus do they really believe in? Do they believe in that suffering servant of Isaiah 53? There we see him suffering in agony and pain. There we see through him all that is evil in man. For the Lord God laid on that suffering servant, pictured there, the iniquity of us all. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. That is the horrible picture modern man does not want any part of. But why does this suffering come into the world? 
It came into the world because of man's own sin. Man brought it upon himself. Christ's suffering was through no fault of his own. He was the only one who ever lived on earth who did not deserve any of it. And let us not make too much of our own suffering as that rabbi did and as others do. No, our suffering here on earth is in reality not all that great at all. For there are many pleasures to be had, aren't there? When a believer suffers, it's only because of God's love. As we can read in Hebrews 12, he does it to discipline us, to remind us of the wrath to come if we do not turn to him and to look the man of suffering in the face. It is to remind us that we only have a temporary abode here, that we do not belong here, that our citizenship is in heaven. It is to make us long for our Lord and Savior. It is true that there is a lot of suffering here on earth, but during our suffering here on earth, the believer may at the same time call upon him who promised never to leave us, who promised that nothing can separate us from his love. As Paul says rhetorically in, eight, in Romans 8, verse 35, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of God? We may, in the words of the author to the Hebrews, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And think about Job. The Lord allowed Satan to afflict him in the most terrible way, and Satan did. He took all he had, and then some. But during all that time, Job was still able to call upon God and cry out in relief, I know that my Redeemer lives. He had hope. And there you have the great difference between the suffering servant and us. Christ fell into the hands of the living God. He had to bear the full fury of God's wrath against the sin of the whole human race. And at the same time, he had no one to comfort him or to care about him. He was utterly alone. His Father in heaven no longer heard him when he called. He was abandoned by the Father. And only a true believer can have some beginning in understanding what that meant. A humanist will never understand it. Note well that the Catechism speaks about the wrath of God against the whole human race. In other words, not a soul is excluded. It is a terrible tragedy that only so few will take advantage of the free offer of Christ. And therefore, even though he bore the wrath for all, he died for only a few. And that's not God's fault. His mercy is more than enough for all of mankind, for everyone. But the comfort for the believer is that he never has to be afraid to ask for the forgiveness of sins and fear that the son's payment was not enough to cover his sin. There is not a sin so great which cannot be forgiven. And God did everything he could in order to convince the world of that wonderful truth. 
and that is also seen in the official quality of his suffering. The Catechism especially mentions Pontius Pilate as judge. And you may wonder why, for he was nothing more than a petty Roman bureaucrat. Nevertheless, he had quite an important role to play, not so much because of who he is, but because of the position that God had given him. Pilate labored under the delusion that he had power over Christ, for he says to Christ in John 19 verse 10, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. All power is from God alone. As Christ himself said, he could have asked for the assistance of a myriad of angels who would have carried him on their wings and would have whisked him away. But he didn't. As the Son of God, he could have also walked away, as he did earlier on in his life. He walked away, for example, when men took up stones to kill him. Christ waited to be judged by a Roman civil judge. And why? Because he knew that God wanted to use him. For every judge, whether or not he realizes it, is a servant of God. The power to take away freedom honor, even life from a person bearing God's image ultimate belongs to God alone. But God entrusts that power also to certain people. But there is no doubt about one thing. They remain responsible to God himself. And how God uses Pilate to receive the power from God to officially execute the final judgment on God, of God on the Son. God has appointed him for that task. And there's another reason why he also wants to use Pilate. He uses Pilate in order to make sure that it was crystal clear that his son was innocently condemned to death. The Roman justice system was the best the world had ever seen. Up until that time, not a fairer system based on human principles had ever been devised. Before the Sanhedrin, Jesus Christ could not get justice. And that was a terrible thing, for the Sanhedrin knew the law of God. They knew how God also hates injustice. But how did it go before the elders of the Jews? First, they trump trump up all kinds of charges against them, and then they bring false witnesses to confirm them. But those false witnesses get caught in their own lies. Mark 14, verse 59 tells us that their testimony did not agree. If the Sanhedrin had succeeded, then Christ would have entered into the history books as nothing more than a lawbreaker and a criminal. But God made sure that their plan would fail. He blows away the smoke screen. It had to be established forever that everyone knew why he was being condemned. There could be no false charges against him that stick. The enemy had to be fully exposed, which is also what happens. It had to be known who he is and why the charges were laid. From Matthew 26, it becomes clear that the high priest was forced to ask him to tell him whether or not he claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus said to him, Yes, it is as you say. 
But then again, the agents of Satan still do not want that claim to be known. For do you think that the high priest as the instrument of, sa of Satan would have condemned him for that? No, in his haste to do away with this troublemaker, he delivers him to Pontius Pilate as judge and want him executed for a completely different reason. In Luke 23, verse 2, we read that he says to the authorities, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. It was an outright lie. But after some investigation, Pilate came to the right conclusion that Christ was innocent against the charges laid against him. He said to the Jews, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no crime in him. Pilate proclaims his innocence. Satan's plan fails again. But then they keep on shouting, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king sets himself against Caesar. And they work on his fear, and justice goes out the window. It was a great miscarriage of justice. And then the people are allowed to vote between Barabbas and Jesus. And for one man that day, it became a good day, a good Friday indeed. That man was Barabbas. They took him from his dungeon, and while his eyes were still blinking from the rays of the rising sun, they told him he would be set free and that Jesus would be killed. It's a horrible thing that happened. The name of a great sinner is written on the same ballot as the name of Jesus. It is not in accordance with the rules of justice to ask for a vote between a murderer and a completely innocent man. But that's what happened on Good Friday. The innocent was killed and the sinner set free. But, congregation, that's also what happened to you and to me. The doors of our prison are opened. And we are set free as well. Our sin was laid on the scapegoat. The lamb was slain once for all. And if you truly believe that, then you too can be totally set free. That brings us to the character of his death. The catechism also tells us why he was crucified. Jesus could have been stoned. But God led him on his road of suffering to Pilate and to the cross. The Romans used the cross to execute low-class low criminals, such as slaves and foreigners. And among the Jews, the cross also had a special significance. It signified accursedness. A man hung between heaven and earth indicated that he was wanted neither in heaven nor on earth. He was cursed by God and by man. And that is the significance of the cross of Christ. Mankind did not want him. God did not want him. And that is the curse which also lay on us. Note well, however, that the catechism uses the past tense. For that curse is no longer there. Christ removed that curse. And that, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, is the wonderful message you may hear again this afternoon. It is that message only for those who want to face that suffering servant, 
who do not want to take who do not want to turn away from the reality of their own sins God's curse no longer rests on the believer Christ was innocently put to death for my sake for your sake he hung on the cross for me he was despised so that I would not be Satan can accuse you and me all he wants he can say all he wants about you and do whatever God allows him but he cannot make his charges stick even though guilty we are declared innocent through the blood of Christ as Paul says to the Romans in Romans 8 verse 33 who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen it is God who justifies you see congregation it's God's work alone instead of being angry with God as many people are instead we should give him thanks we must thank him in times of adversity even at times when our sorrow is so great and almost unbearable for during our suffering we may remember the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ we may remember what he did for us he came to deliver us from sin and the result of sin congregation have the eyes of faith it is only when you look at that suffering servant that you will understand the suffering in this world give thanks to him do not despise him love him with all your heart amen <laughs>